0: from the nation magazine this is start making sense progressive news without the boring parts i'm john wiener today we'll be talking about politics in america later in the podcast sasha abramski will report on interviewing trump supporters it's pretty terrifying And Leila Lalami will talk about American Muslims' responses to Donald Trump's attacks. But first, maybe you heard the news. This week was Super Tuesday. For comment and analysis, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst at MSNBC. And she's the author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Joan Walsh, welcome back.
1: Thanks for having me. Happy to be back.
0: Well, this week, we had primary elections in a dozen states. And in case people have forgotten, on the Republican side, the winner was Donald Trump. He won, I think it's seven out of 11 states. Ted Cruz had to win his home state of Texas. He did. He also won Oklahoma and Alaska. Marco Rubio had never won any state until Super Tuesday when he won in Minnesota. And John Kasich almost won Vermont. So, seems to me... We have two Republican headlines. One, Trump triumphs. Two, nobody's getting out.
1: That's exactly right. <laughs> I mean, everybody won just enough. Every All the non-Trumps won just enough to keep them going. I don't know what Ben Carson thinks he's doing, but he lives, uh, I think, it, sort of on a different plane from the rest of us. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, those other guys all see, all got some validation uh, on Tuesday and I just don't see them going any place at least until March 14th. I think we have another good 10 days of this.
0: And on the Democratic side, in case people haven't heard the news, the winner was Hillary Clinton. Bernie had to win in Massachusetts, but he did not succeed. Hillary prevailed there, not by a lot, maybe one and a half points, something like 50 to 49. Bernie did win his other four target states, Colorado, Oklahoma, Vermont, and Minnesota. Hillary carried all the rest, uh, states in the South. What does this tell us about The Democratic candidates and the Democratic voters
1: well I think it does tell us you know with 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 more likelihood that Hillary Clinton will be the nominee I think it also tells us though John that that Bernie Sanders still has not and his team still have really not uh, gotten the extent to which the Democratic Party has a multiracial base and going you know making the decision after his defeat in South Carolina to focus on you know heavily not just majority white states but the but the very 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 white states uh, with the exception of Colorado I guess I would have to say uh, I think was was perceived as a little bit disrespectful to uh, black voters in the south and you know a lot of people said after South Carolina well I mean okay she won the black vote 85 15 there but it's not you know, that's kind of crazy it's not going to be like that again well it was like that again and I think when you took the adge- the aggregate of the eleven the black vote in all eleven states uh, on Tuesday night, she won about eighty four percent of it. So South Carolina was not an outlier; it was a predictor. She also uh, won the Latino vote uh, roughly two to one, and I think that bodes poorly for him. Um, so I you know I think he's, he's- Senator Sanders is still raising great issues. He's still doing very well with young people, and Hillary Clinton has to worry about that. But I think, you know, his team really did not appreciate the extent to which this is a multiracial party and he would have a hard time uh, really drawing a lot of, of votes of non-white Democrats.
0: We've all been amazed by Bernie's uh, fundraising. He raised $42 million in February in, in those $27 uh, average contributions, more than double any other candidate. He has more uh, contributors to his campaign than any candidate in history. That is one of the things that's keeping him going, I think.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I, you know, I, and I think that's a that's a great thing for the progressive base, and and you know, uh, other people should be really trying to figure, including the Clinton campaign, should really be trying to understand what what he's tapping into, and I don't mean cynically, like <laughs> can you give me can you give me their phone numbers, Bernie, um, but but specifically the issues that are are getting people. Uh, to give even if they you know just kind of like the obama campaign even even if they don't have a lot to give uh to feel like they want to in, invest you know literally and symbolically in this historic campaign and you know i i very as i as much as i'm a realist and i you know i'm also a clinton supporter i've been clear about that i very much want to continue in the race because i think that they are having a debate that is very important, uh, you know, on some issues like guns. I think she's winning uh, on others. He's he's winning. And I, I I think it's good for Democrats to bring that argument to all 50 states uh, and, and you know, not even neglect the red states, which, you know, let's face it, are going to be fairly neglected in November, no matter who the nominee is, because that's the nature of, of you know, national uh, presidential politics. It comes down to about Eleven swing states, uh, but but for now, I think it's it's great that he has the the energy uh, and the funding to continue to make his case to the voters. And you know things things can change, uh, they, you know they they can. But there's nothing that we've seen so far uh, pushes me off what I believed when the race began that he's going to be the candidate mainly of of you know young white and young, and, and white educated, uh, as well as, uh, you know, he's getting a fair number of white working class voters, too. So his class appeal is, is winning. Um, but he's just not pulling in the diversity that he needs to really be this, the party's standard bearer yet.
0: Bernie has said many times that his uh, goal is to build a movement that will, a revolution, he calls it, that will transform American politics and transform the Democratic Party. Uh, I'm sure that's one reason why he's pledged to stay in till the end. Uh, how do you think he's he's doing with that project?
1: Well, you know, on the level of fundraising, I think he's doing an, an excellent job. On the le- level of voter turnout, not as not nearly as well. He we are we are seeing turnout. You know, way down from 08, and, that, you know, and that's not just Bernie's fault. Hillary could be doing a better job generating enthusiasm as well. Um, and, you know, there were also a lot more candidates in the race in uh, 2008, and that we had two very uh, galvanizing potential firsts uh, in, in Clinton-Obama. So, you know, I don't put that I don't put it all on Bernie at all, but if your theory of change is I'm gonna bring in a whole bunch of new new people who are not participating and they're gonna change the nature of the debate and the system and you don't bring those people in, I, I think I think it's disappointing. Uh and so far we haven't seen the kind of turnout number. We see rally numbers. We see amazing rallies, uh, and we see donations, but we do not see voting the way we need to see voting for his argument to really, I think, carry the day.
0: Of course, the, the really big story from Super Tuesday is, is uh, Trump now appears to be absolutely unstoppable. There's growing, uh, is it fair to say, panic in the Republican establishment over their inability to come up with a way of of stopping him. Trump is a frightening uh, candidate, a frightening person. Um, But some some of my friends say Trump would be the easiest candidates for the Democrats to beat. Uh, He would not only lose the presidency, but also ravage the party down the ballot, uh, making it much easier for the Democrats to retake the Senate, which, of course, is crucial to the next Supreme Court pick. Uh, I've been told by more than one friend, we don't want to stop Trump. We want him to be their candidate and wreck the Republican Party. What do you think of that argument?
1: I think it's a dangerous argument. I mean, look, Republican voters are going to do what they're going to do and I, you know, we don't we don't really have a whole lot of influence in in what they do. But as, you know, as an observer, you know, unless your friends predicted that that he would dominate the primaries, the way he's done, which very few people did. Also, unless your friends predicted the the rise of Bernie Sanders, although it hasn't been, he hasn't risen quite as as high as as some have hoped. He's risen much higher than many predicted. This is a volatile year, and I don't feel confident as someone who's covered a lot of campaigns in saying it, it gives me, it, you know, it it, it it helps me sleep at night to say, oh, I think the country will be revolted by his misogyny and his racism. It it makes me feel good to say that, but I'm not quite sure... I believe it all the way. I mean, I do believe it. As I'm an optimist, I believe that America is basically good. I believe, you know, most voters don't want to be represented by somebody like that, but I'm not sure. And so, you know, when Democrats try to console themselves and comfort themselves uh, by saying that Trump is just a buffoon and, and you know, he'll be easy to beat, I, I, don't, I don't think that at all.
0: Trump, in his victory speech on Tuesday night, said, we have expanded the Republican Party. That hasn't happened to the Republican Party in many decades. Do you think he's right about that?
1: No, I think he's, I mean, I think he's turning out more disaffected white voters, Um, but what the party really needs is to be competitive with latinos to cut at least somewhat into the african american margin and he's not doing that i think he's he's probably bringing in some apathetic really you know pessimistic uh down i hate that term downscale but you know working class whites who Think things are worse for their are going to be worse for their kids than they were for them, and I think and and I think that's probably pretty true. Um, but I, he's not doing anything like the the kind of expansion that he would need to do to be a credible national candidate. Now again, if those working class whites surge to the polls, and if for some reason either Clinton or Sanders fails to uh, galvanize the Democrats' diverse base, he could win. I, I can't say that he can't win.
0: Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keeler. The Minnesota results last night were so fascinating. Bernie 62, Hillary 38 on the Democratic side. And on the Republican side, Rubio thirty-seven, the only state that Marco has won. If Marco becomes president, Minnesota will have been the starting place.
1: <laughs> it all started in Minnesota. <laughs> Cruz got you'll twenty-seven. Be so, you'll be so you'll be so proud. <laughs> um, no, it's you know it's it's a win. A win is a win. It's you know it's it's something. Uh, he he desperately needed that um, to, to have any credibility uh, going. You know, getting getting out of Super Tuesday, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love Minnesota. I, it's a, a great state with a history of great participation. And and you also have, you know, Michelle Bachman. So you've, you've even got the crazy. <laughs> Thank you. Very representative. Of, Thank
0: you for reminding yeah. us about the crazy. Trump only got 21 percent in Minnesota. He came in third. It's it may be the only state where he where he uh, came in third. Cruz got 29 percent uh, in Minnesota. I, I would have th- I had thought the Republicans in Minnesota were very evangelical, but Cruz only got 29, and then Kasich got got six. So uh, Minnesota, one heck of a state.
1: One heck of a state, and you know Rubio did invest a lot of time and, and energy there. So, you know, it, with a, with a caucus, that can really that can really pay off.
0: He and, did have Bobby Jindal campaigning for him in Minnesota.
1: Well, then, yeah, I mean that that obvious. We, how did we not see it coming when Bobby Jindal <laughs> went there? You know, one of the most popular of the uh, twenty sixteen <laughs> candidates. That so, told us everything.
0: The, the the pundits tell us it's. Time now to talk about uh, Hillary versus Trump. Do you think it is time for that uh, conversation?
1: Sure. The Republican establishment, which I guess doesn't exist, uh, is living in denial if they think, you know, Trump is not going to get the majority of delegates. I think their only hope is that he doesn't get the number he needs to put him over the top uh, you know, in the first ballot, and then everybody can just be free afterwards to vote who for whomever they want um, I think there 's a small chance that that if all these guys stay in the race, and I think you might have you might have a strategy down the road where you know uh, unnamed or maybe named Republican donors decide to to pony up behind each of these guys to keep them around and competitive and snatching delegates long enough so that even though he has the plurality of delegates, he can't win on the first ballot. I, 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 you know, I I think that's unlikely. I think he probably will get enough. I think, you know, looking at the trends uh, from the past, projecting forward, I think he will get enough votes, uh, actual votes. But that is their only chance. I think their only chance is to keep all these guys in the race and and keep him you know having to fight in every state and uh and hope uh hope that they hope that they drag him down you know delegate by delegate and keep things alive for the convention but you know as a democrat that would be you know as a as a reporter not just a democrat that's uh that's quite a show that's that's a lot to look forward to but um you know, I think that's the only the only way he gets defeated.
0: Well, that certainly is John Kasich's uh, route to the nomination.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, I, I I mean, I think he's I think he's trailing in Ohio, <laughs> and I think and you mm-hmm. know, Rubio's trailing in Florida. So if they both lose their home states on that on March fifteenth, you know, it may be all over because they aren't credible enough to be able to snatch to keep you know winning delegates. They'd have to have a big haul on on that you know, second Super Tuesday. Um, and But, you know, the, the other thing is people, so, so many Republicans from, you know, from the left to the right, if you can say left in the Republican Party, but from the center to the right, despise Ted Cruz. So the idea that everybody is going to come together behind Ted Cruz, if you had a different candidate who was in second place, you might have more of a, more of a call for, uh, uh, not just a call, but uh, more of an audience for hey guys you've done really good but it's time to get out and unite behind this number two person as long as it's ted cruz you're just going to have so much resistance because and also resistance from the establishment cuz they don't really think he's electable either
0: and in terms of the of the scenario where trump doesn't get a majority and it goes to a hung uh, convention rachel maddow pointed out on super tuesday night can you imagine the the candidate who has won a clear majority of states and a clear majority of primary voters in the Republican Party being denied the nomination? That would sh- that would shatter the party as surely as a Trump candidacy would.
1: I think so too. I mean, I, I think if they if they went ahead and you know with this strategy, okay, he doesn't quite get over the top, uh, then everybody's free to vote for whomever they want. I think you would see a revolt uh, among his supporters and by him. You know, he has said, I don't think he can at this point run a credible, uh, you know, third party or independent race. He can't get on the ballot, but he could get on the ballot in enough states to, to make things difficult. And I think you really would have, uh, I think it would be an, an absolute meltdown for the party. I don't know how they would put it back together after, the, after they did that to him if that, if that happened.
0: Joan Walsh, read her at thenation.com. Joan, thanks for talking with us today.
1: Thanks, John. It was fun.
0: For more on Trump and his supporters, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's a reporter who writes regularly for The Nation. He's also the author of seven books, including The American Way of Poverty, How the Other Half Still Lives and an amazing memoir, The House of 20,000 Books. He also teaches writing at UC Davis. Sasha Abramsky, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Well, you reported recently in The Nation that Trump is, quote, bringing out of the woodwork every crank and fanatic in the country. I know you talked to some of the cranks and fanatics. Where did you find them, and what did they tell you?
2: You know, unfortunately, I didn't have to look very hard. I went to Sparks, just outside Reno in Nevada, to cover the caucus there. And I went to the First Baptist Church, which was a suburban church. Seven precincts were caucusing there. And I just started asking people, who are you going to vote for? And if they said they were voting for Trump, I started asking them very particular questions around immigration and around what they thought of Muslims. And the reason I did that was Trump's obviously got a tremendous following, at least based in part on the fact that he plays a very demagogic game when it comes to the southern border with Mexico and when it comes to America's relationship with the Muslim world and with Muslims living in America. So I started asking people what they thought, and not just a couple, but one after another after another. The default position was all Muslims should be expelled from America, and a goodly number of the people I talked to said they should be given a choice of being executed or being deported. And you hear language like this, and it's the language of fascism. It's the language of the pogrom from out of the 1930s in Europe. It's the language of sort of the pre-Hitler years when all of the certainties of Weimar democracy began crumbling, and you could start saying anything and thinking anything and doing anything, and the political structures had no ability in place to push back. And what I saw in Nevada began to terrify me, because I think what has happened with the Trump campaign is he's given the okay anybody and everybody who's angry to voice their bigotries in a way that it hasn't been okay to do for decades in this country.
0: Tell us a little bit about the people that you talked to at the caucus who were who were Trump supporters. Did you find out anything about who they were or what they did?
2: Well, several of them were retirees, and certainly the most extreme person I talked to was a man in his 70s, and he was a retired, I believe he was a businessman of some sort, or a carpenter, I can't remember. Um, but he was absolutely adamant that the choice should be what he called the trench or deportation. And when I said, what do you mean by the trench? He said execution. Um, I spoke to a young elementary school teacher. I spoke to a number of middle-aged people. The thing that I found was an awful lot of people I talked to were absolutely infuriated with the breakdown of the political system. They were infuriated by the paralysis in D.C. They were infuriated by the dysfunction of governing structures in this country. And all of that anger, which could be channeled to progressive politics, it could be channeled to some kind of alternative, better vision. At the moment, because of the way the Republican primaries are playing out, at the moment, all of that anger is giving momentum to a nativist, populist bully who uses the language of the Iron Fist. It's, it's, it's the most extraordinary moment in American politics.
0: One more question about your interviews with Trump supporters in Nevada. What did they know about you?
2: They, they knew that I was writing for a magazine, and they knew nothing else. They did ask me, several did ask me if I was Jewish, based on my name. I've, I've been asked that question before in settings in journalism, but it's always discomforting when somebody wants to know who you are ethnically before they start talking with you. It means that what they're trying to do is ferret out. Are you, quote, unquote, one of us? And that's the politics of absolute division. Um, Now, you've belatedly seen a few Republicans sort of in a sputtering kind of way start to critique this language. Mitt Romney started critiquing this language. Some of the governors have started and a few of the senators. But the overwhelming majority of elected officials in the Republican Party are not using the language to call out Trump. What they're doing is they're saying they don't like him. They're saying he's a bit of a buffoon or a clown, but they're not using the language that says this man is a fascist, that he's coddling the support of white supremacists, that he's not really disavowing the support of the KKK, or if he does so, it's only after a firestorm of criticism, that he gets the support of the French fascist leader, Jean-Marie Le Pen, and he doesn't disavow it. That he gets robo-calls from one white supremacist group after another, arguing on his behalf, and he hasn't disavowed that. That at every step of the way, he's playing this double game. He's saying to the Republicans, vote for me because I can create a broad coalition, but he's saying to the white supremacists, in code, vote for me because I'll be sympathetic to your values.
0: Well, people like you and me have been saying for weeks the Republicans need to go after uh, Trump directly and uh, aggressively. And, in fact, last week, Marco Rubio did. Marco Rubio, in in that uh, debate, attacked Trump for, among other things, hiring uh, guest workers instead of Americans— for the fact that his ties are made in China. What did you think of Rubio's attack on Trump?
2: It's far too little, far too late. Rubio was critiquing him on sub-substantive issues. But then at the end of the day, he went on the campaign trail, and he accused Donald Trump of peeing in his pants, and Donald Trump accused him of sweating too much. And when you get to that point... When you get to a point where political discussion involving leadership of the most powerful country on earth, a country with thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons at its disposal, when you get to the point where the people saying, I'm most qualified to be the candidate for president of that country, are making toilet jokes at each other's expense, it's the ultimate devolution of the political process. And what I wrote a few days ago in The Nation Well, so this is no longer politics, that it's something approaching pornography masquerading as politics, that this is a theater of spectacle, and it has nothing to do with the political process. It's devolved into a popularity contest. It's devolved into an entertainment spectacle. It's devolved into something much more akin to world wrestling or much more akin to a gladiatorial show than into a discussion of specific policies. And what I argued in The Nation was that means that we're playing two separate games, that on one level we have this very rational conversation about poverty, about climate change, about public health crises, a very cerebral, rational conversation about the issues at the moment. And then on the other hand, we have this grotesque spectacle where Donald Trump is essentially leading this circus, this circus, this circus of spectacle instead of ideas. And one can only imagine what the rest of the world is looking at us like. The rest of the world is thinking this is the most powerful country on earth. This is a country with the nuclear power to annihilate the world. And its political leadership contest has devolved into this sort of pornographic spectacle. It's, as I said, it's the most grotesque thing that I certainly have witnessed as a political journalist. But I suspect when historians write about this 50, 100, 150 years from now, I suspect they will look at this moment with much the same unforgiving lens that historians in recent years have looked at the early 1930s in Germany, as happy people went to the beer halls and voted for fascists without thinking about the implication of what they were doing.
0: Now, I have some friends who say that we shouldn't be so concerned about Trump. We shouldn't want to stop Trump because Trump would be the easiest candidate for the Democrats to beat. He would not only lose the presidency to a Democrat, but he would, he would ravage the Republican Party down the ballot. Uh, the, re, the Democrats would have a much easier time of retaking the Senate if Trump were at the head of the ticket. Some Republicans have said they're very worried about uh, this prospect uh, themselves. So I've been told by more than one friend, we don't want to stop Trump. We want him to be their candidate, which will wreck the Republican Party. What
2: do you think of that? Yeah, I've, I've, I've had that discussion with a number of friends, too, and it's only possible. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly nothing in what I'm saying is meant to say that Trump is foreordained to win anything and everything. It's entirely possible he will turn out to be a blustering moment, a spot in the sun for five, 10 months, and then we'll all forget about him. But that's a, a huge risk to take with the democratic process of a country as important on the global stage as is America. Yes, it's possible it might destroy the Republican Party, but it's also possible that the crazy momentum that has taken Donald Trump into this leading position to become the nominee, it's possible it will absolutely shatter what remains of the functioning of this political process. And that's an enormous risk to take.
0: So Trump has the support of millions of Americans. Why do you think that message is so effective in America today?
2: The best analysis I read of this was an open letter that Robert Reich just published to the Republican Party. And Reich's analysis was this. You have played the game of inequality for decades. You've completely hollowed out the middle class of this country. You've played the game of fear for decades. You've completely hollowed out the ability of the political process to argue political points civilly and rationally that they've encouraged this sort of increasing move toward vitriol and towards extremism, and that now they're dealing with the consequences. And the consequences are horrific in terms of the implications of how this republic functions. And I think that that actually really goes to the core of it, that you've got an awful lot of people in this country who feel, and they're not wrong in their feeling, that the political process has absolutely let them down. You've got an awful lot of people who feel, and again, they're not wrong, that their living standards are going in the wrong direction. And you've got an awful lot of people who feel, and again, they're not wrong, that all of their securities in life have disappeared. Their pensions have disappeared. If they had savings, they still haven't managed to recover those savings from the collapse in 2008. Their home values declined and in many cases didn't come back. Many people lost their homes and went into foreclosure. That time again... The political process in this country has proven utterly unable or unwilling to deal with all of these complex economic and political and social problems. And the end result is you have millions and millions and millions of people who are absolutely angry. And so they look at the political process and the economic process through a lens of anger, through a lens of fear, through a lens of rage. Now, if that's your political default, if you think in terms of anger and fear, you go for a candidate who is going to both play to your anger and also stoke your fear. And in all of those instances, a candidate like Donald Trump is the perfect fit because he's a great demagogue. And demagogues historically have always pandered to anger and fear. It's the coalitions that they need, the coalition of the angry and the fearful. They don't create coalitions based around specific policies. If you look at Donald Trump's political platform, it's almost absent any substantive policies. He talks about building a wall. So that's great. He has one architectural project (laughs) at the heart of his political candidacy. He talks about shooting terrorism suspects. Great. So he has a second policy, which involves putting America on the wrong side of the Geneva Convention and every other human rights treaty that America is a part of. And then he talks vaguely about tariffs with China. But again, there's no specifics. And if he were to do the kind of tariffs against China that he says he will, he'd create a trade war which America couldn't possibly win because we're so far in debt to the rest of the world at this point. So at every level, the politics are a charade, but the coalition of anger and the coalition of rage and the coalition of fear that he's building, that's a very potent force.
0: Sasha Abramsky, read him at thenation.com. Sasha, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. we want to talk about American Muslims and Donald Trump. And for that, we turn to Leila Lalami. She wrote the novel The Moor's Account. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Her essays and opinion pieces have appeared in The New York Times, The L.A. Times, The Washington Post and The Guardian. And now she's become a columnist for The Nation. Her first column just appeared. Leila Lalami, welcome. Thank you for having me. We know that at his rallies, Donald Trump pours scorn on Mexicans, immigrants in general, women, his opponents, reporters who dare to criticize him. And we also know that Trump's number one target has been Muslims. He called for a complete ban on Muslims entering the United States, and that wasn't all. Remind us what else he's called for.
3: It's such a long list. So basically, after the the terrorist attacks in Paris in November, he suggested that mosques Uh, might have to be shut down. Um, He said he wouldn't rule out requiring Muslims to be registered in a database or having to carry special IDs. He said um, after the San Bernardino attacks, he suggested a complete ban on Muslims entering uh, the United States until, and I quote, our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. And that was back in December 7th. Clearly the representatives haven't figured out what is going on yet.
0: But Trump also has heroes. Who are his heroes?
3: Well, of course, the men and women who served in, in the U.S. military. I mean, it's really a huge contrast uh, when you look at his rhetoric, uh, when he talks about the Muslims versus when he talks about veterans. For veterans, he calls them incredible people, people who are brave beyond comprehension, our greatest people. He promises he will help them. He says that he will fix all the problems with the Department of uh, Veterans Affairs. So it's really striking to see Muslims are the most reviled uh, community in Trump's speeches and that veterans are the most revered. So it's really a sharp contrast.
0: And then there are people like Sergeant Taib Rashid, a Marine from Chicago. I'd never heard about him till I read your column. Tell us about him.
3: Well, this this was really kind of a heartening uh, display of intercommunal solidarity, because, of course, saying that there are two communities, veterans and Muslims, doesn't mean that they are at all uh, mutually exclusive. So it's really interesting to see these cases where Muslim veterans have spoken up about this. So this sergeant, he's a Marine vet from Chicago when Donald Trump said that he wouldn't rule out uh, special IDs for Muslims. Uh, This gentleman took a picture of his Marine ID and tweeted it at Donald Trump saying, I'm an American Muslim and I already carry a special ID badge. Where's yours? And this tweet went viral and got retweeted a number of times, uh, several thousand times. So I think it really struck a chord with a number of people within both the military community and Muslim community.
0: There's also a Twitter campaign around the hashtag Vets versus hate. Vets V S hate, one word. What's that about
3: there? This hashtag vets versus hate, is basically involves pictures of veterans saying that they don't want to be used by Trump as props, that they don't think that hate makes America great, that they do support Muslims, that they know Muslims and so on and so forth. So it's it's a nice example of um, of intercommunal uh, support.
0: Outside the Twitterverse, you found some other examples.
3: So so I'll give you another example. Um, there's a, a mosque in Seattle that holds uh, a, what it calls days, a day of dignity. It's once a year they do this, sort of their outrage and charity program. And so they do it for the homeless, including homeless vets, and they give them foods and supplies and so on and so forth. To me, that just basically goes to show you that people are not labels. Trump thinks about veterans and Muslims as labels. He doesn't really think of them as people or a multitude of individuals. He thinks of them as convenient labels that he can use in order to push uh, to, to, to continue to get a lot of airtime and to gain votes because he knows that Muslims are a minority and that they are often misunderstood and uh, misrepresented. He uses that to revile them. And because he knows that veterans are by and large considered to be people who have made major sacrifices for the country, he uses that to revere them, but he cares about need or community. If you look at his policies, uh, it becomes really quite clear. For example, he has said that he would uh, use torture um, and not only torture, but forms of torture that we have not yet seen in the United States. He said things that are a lot worse than waterboarding, which is what you've seen in places like Guantanamo Bay. Somebody who talks like that is basically asking people in the United States right now to send their children um, to go to war to a place where they will be asked to perform that torture on his behalf. Uh, and torture is a war crime. So he's basically to me, it shows that he absolutely has no care for for veterans, that he's going to ask them to break international law uh, for his agendas.
0: We wonder what kind of response Trump is getting uh, when we have some answers in South Carolina, where Republican voters a couple of weeks ago made Trump their number one choice to be president. For South Carolina, we have some polls of Trump voters and what they think he had made terrorism in quotes, one of his main themes there. And then pollsters asked his supporters what they thought of his ideas about terrorism. What did they find?
3: I mean, the first thing before I talk about the figures, one of the things I should mention is that the average American is five thousand, five thousand times uh, more likely to be harmed by gun violence uh, than uh, he or she is to be um, a victim of terrorism. 5,000 times more likely. And yet terrorism has um, uh, catapulted to the top of uh, voters' concerns, partly because of this rhetoric that uh, the GOP has been pushing. So in South Carolina, 80% of Trump supporters want to ban Muslims from the United States altogether. 38% wish that the South had won the civil war. It just it just goes on. 70 uh, percent of Trump voters in South Carolina support uh, the Confederate flag uh, being hoisted over the Capitol in their state. Another 30 percent want to ban gays from entering the United States. Not sure why. So it, it's really clear that he has tapped into a a well of uh, bigotry and a just fear of anybody who is not straight, who is not white, and who is not Christian.
0: And let me add, that poll also found two-thirds of Trump backers in South Carolina support a federal registry of Muslims, 40% support shutting down all the mosques in the United States, And they were asked the question, should the practice of Islam be legal at all in the United States? Only 44 percent of Trump supporters said, yes, the practice of Islam should be legal. This is all from the highly regarded PPP poll.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is this is basically the question that that has come up. But have these voters always been around? Or has uh, Trump's rhetoric helped uh, exacerbate these feelings in voters who would otherwise have been harmless? And the thing is, the answer is probably it's a bit of both, because this when I started out, I said, let me preface this by saying that uh, a person is 5,000 times more likely to be harmed by uh, gun violence than they are by terrorism. That is just a fact. But these, uh, not just Trump, but pretty much our entire uh, political class, just uh, particularly on the Republican side, refuses to talk about gun violence or to take it seriously as an issue, as as an electoral issue. And so I think it just gives People the impression that it's not as big of a threat to their way of life um, or to their lives, Uh, whereas the fact that that this constant talk about uh, uh, Muslims and war and terrorism uh, really makes people worried. Uh, What's sad is that the GOP has been watching Trump uh, make all these essentially fascist arguments and has been waiting for him to go away on his own rather than just confronting him. And part of the reason that they haven't done that is because all of the people he has attacked, the disabled, LGBT people, uh, immigrants, uh, Mexicans, women, are all people that the GOP views as expendable or people that it doesn't really feel that it needs to worry about in order to win elections. And um, so the question is, you know, if you add up all these minorities that Trump has denigrated, you are likely to end up with a majority of voters. Uh, And so in November, we're going to see uh, whether they're going to show up at the polls or not.
0: Layla Lalami, she's the new columnist for The Nation. Layla, thanks for talking with us today.
3: Thank you for having me, John.
0: Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.